HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Caroline Cotto, co-founder and COO of Renewal Mill. Named a world-changing idea by Fast Company, Renewal Mill is an upcycled food company that fights climate change by upcycling byproducts from food manufacturing into ingredients and pantry staples. I'm also joined by Azura Zoe Paknod, founder of Goldoon, a new e-commerce brand and marketplace, making sustainability more fun, more inclusive, and more digestible for consumers. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> it's always a little bit weird when there are two guests and we're remote <laughs> because no one knows when to talk. So welcome, Caroline. Thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome, Azora Zoe. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm happy to have you both here. And I'm excited for this conversation because I personally have... Um, you know, bumped up, I think, against um, some sort of reductive thinking. I think that the American consumer has sort of been trained in when it comes to what is environmentally sort of uh, sounder and better, what is uh, more sustainable. And I think, you know, we've been sort of given very... um, you know, binary, this is good, this is bad. This is, it's like a, it's kind of like a zero sum situation. And I think in order for consumers to really, you know, feel more confident making more sustainable choices, they have to have a little bit more nuance um, and they have to have a little more information. Um, so I guess that's my way of saying that I'm, I'm just very happy to have you both here to have this conversation. And Caroline, 
I want to start with you. Um, I actually made a peach crisp um, yesterday and I used Renewal Mill flour. Um, and I told my kids all about it when we were eating the peach crisp and everyone was very excited. So <laughs> will awesome. you, um, yeah, tell everyone a little bit about Renewal Mill and about upcycling um, and you know how you got it started. Absolutely. So Renewal Mill is what we call an upcycled food company. Um, and at the heart of that, what we're doing is taking the leftover byproducts from food manufacturing and turning those into ingredients in order to keep that nutrition in the supply chain. And mm-hmm. I know that's a lot of words, but um, basically we got our start because my co-founder um, had founded Boston's first organic juice company and was appalled at the amount of nutritious fruit and vegetable pulp she was left with at the end of every day. Right. Um, she was taking like a ton of care to source this locally grown produce um, and she just couldn't use that pulp in enough ways fast enough before it went to waste. So quickly, we um, actually happened to meet the owner of the third largest tofu factory in the country um, based here in Oakland and quickly learned that he, too, was having a pulp waste problem when he was producing tofu, but at a much larger scale. So yeah. uh, producing like tons and tons of soybean pulp. Um, which comes from when you make soy milk, you're essentially juicing soybeans and Mm -hmm. then siphoning off that liquid to make soy milk. And what's left over is this pulp. Um, And so what we do at Renewal Mill is we take that pulp and we dehydrate it and mill it into flour. Um, So we started with the the soy milk byproduct, which is called Okara. Um, Mm -hmm. We've expanded into um, the byproduct of oat milk, which Mm -hmm. we take and turn into a high protein oat flour. Yeah. Um, And then this process is applicable to lots of other byproduct streams um, across the food system. So things like nut and seed cakes from cold pressed oil processing, fruit and vegetable pulps, spent grain from beer brewing, um, potato peels, all sorts of things, ways to, to make our food system more circular and keep all of that fiber and protein and nutrition um, in our food. Yeah. No, I mean, that was a great explanation and it makes a lot of sense. And actually a lot of the stuff like is done in sort of smaller food system ways, right? Like people have been taking byproduct and, and making it into things forever, just in a, in a effort not to waste and to use like the whole vegetable. Um, but it seems like it's always been a challenge in the American food system. And from my understanding, part of that challenge has been sort of, you know, a reliance on someone else's, you know, volume up, going up, going down, what they're producing. If what, let's say that you, you have, you know, a bigger purchase order for a particular time and you don't get enough of their waste, how do you sort of, you know, lining up your production with another company's production um, just seems really challenging. And I mean, I know people that are, you know, trying to use the whey from the yogurt company or trying to use, you know, the lemon peels from a juice company or whatever it is. Um, how, how did you, how did you kind of approach that, I guess? You know, what, how did you think about it? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a challenging part of the upcycled food space <laughs> overall. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, we've really chosen to focus with our initial ingredients on sort of 
growing sectors. So tofu and plant-based meat are growing, um, Mm -hmm. as is oat milk production. So um, by choosing those two ingredients, we're able to kind of hone in on um, companies that are building new production facilities and have like very steady supplies of their byproduct and um, projections for that byproduct stream to grow. That makes a lot of sense. The second issue is, you know, where I think we're going to loop Azora Zoe in, which is, you know, marketing. Um, The American consumer traditionally doesn't like things that are made with byproducts or, you know, even though they, one part of their brain, you know, definitely is starting to understand that they should waste less. The other part of their brain still likes the, the thing that's like shiny and new. And we've been trained over, you know, a hundred years of, you know, consumer behavior to like the perfect shiny thing that's at the front. Um, And I think there's starting to be a shift, but I guess I'm kind of curious about your perspective, Caroline, and then we're going to get to Azora Zoe too, you know, how do you think about marketing to today's consumer maybe differently than you would have a couple of years ago? Or how, what do you, you know, what have they been taught that they're unlearning right now that is partially what your job is in the marketing piece of it? Yeah, I think it's two two pieces. You know, when we started this five years ago, we really had to go all the way back to the beginning and start the conversation with, did you know that food waste is a problem? <laughs> um, now, right. most people know that food waste is a problem and they are looking for a solution. Um, but then you come up against that kind of instinctual fact in a lot of American consumers, especially where it's like, oh, like, I don't want to be fed, you know, less clean food or food that's unhealthy. Um, And so it's really reframing that from food waste to wasted food. Like there is nothing wrong with this product. It's just been kind of a laziness in our manufacturing system that's allowed us over the last 50, 60 years to not use this. And so Mm -hmm. how do we get back to sort of that age old system where we are just being conscious about our use? Um, And to that point, we've worked with, we helped found the Upcycled Food Association, Mm -hmm. which created the first formal definition of upcycled food. Mm. And um, Drexel University actually did a lot of research on what word was most resonant with consumers about Mm -hmm. um, how to market this. And upcycled was the the word that came up at the top of that research study. And so we've um, just released a certification, actually, that... Um, products can now be upcycled certified the way that they're Mm. certified organic or certified non-GMO. And we're hoping that this seal, which goes on front of PAC, will help do for this movement what like the USDA organic seal has done for the organic movement. So that when people see that seal, they say, oh, I understand when I purchase upcycled food, I'm help fighting food waste. And when I help fight food waste, I help fight climate change and really make that linear Uh, thought path very clear. Yep. No, I mean, that's like, that was awesome. Um, Okay. Azora Zoe, um, you've built a platform for, you know, I like, I love all of the messaging on the website. Um, You know, tell me about Goldoon. Tell me how it came to be. Um, And because, you know, basically products like Renewal Mill, you know, you're, you're using your marketing and your platform to sort of shine on to products like them. Um, 
it's, I just think that having the two of you here together is a really cool little gift. So thank you. So, so tell me about Goldoon and tell me, you know, how, how it evolved. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm excited to be here with Caroline too. We, we love to team up. Um, <laughs> so as far as sort of how Goldoon came to be, uh, it's a quarantine business like a lot of <laughs> others. I'm, I'm not sure that without sort of the unique uh, circumstances of 2020, I, it would have sort of sprung into existence. But, um, you know, on my end, like I, I personally was sort of interested in sustainability before starting the business. I was thinking a lot about what to put in my home. And then when I, I kind of like looked around at the landscape or, you know, would be doing like conscious consumer homework on my own to try to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, what the most sustainable version of what I was looking for to buy would be or like where to get it or, you know, if I even liked it, like, you know, optimizing a little bit. And I, I noticed, first of all, that I was spending so much time doing that <laughs> and that that in itself was, um, a huge privilege. I was lucky. I liked to do it and mm-hmm. that I liked to discover new small brands and sustainable brands. And that I, I found it like a delightful challenge to try to pick, you know, one that was within budget and hopefully women of color found it and right. sort of met all those, those needs for me. But beyond that, I, I think I sort of looked around kind of the sustainable universe, particularly on social media, like Instagram first and foremost. And I think was like a little frustrated or bummed at some point that the, sort of dominant narratives that I was seeing didn't feel very inclusive. And, you know, I might not have even used that language at the time. This was sort of still pre-pandemic, but in one sense, I felt like there were sort of only two really loud and clear voices speaking about sustainability in particular, sort of like sustainable living or, you Mm -hmm. know, conscious consumerism, whatever, whatever we want to call it, or however you identify with that sort of concept. But on one end of the spectrum, there was this like <laughs> very trendy, very quote unquote aspirational influencer who had like the beige house and was like hashtag slow living and you know, right. wore the hemp pants and like had, you know, the open shelving in the kitchen that never was messy and like all mm-hmm. of those things that we've all seen. And, and like the, we, the, we, the little tiny box that was all their waste for the whole year. <laughs> I remember yes, that. That, yeah. that to me is the other end of the spectrum, right? <laughs> then there's like a really loud and proud zero waste community right. who they're like, Hey, we've been storing our trash. It's this one scrap for right. 18 months. And yeah. you know, the, you think about like the, I, I, this, I, I would say 2020, like really made this divide clear, but I, I was thinking about like, okay, what about like family members who are caring for differently abled children or, you know, like people I know right now who are, battling cancer like just there's so there's so few folks who who have that sort of like pristine mm-hmm. condition where they're able to dedicate that much first of all just like brain space or right. that many calories towards never generating waste and yeah. it's it's just it's a huge socioeconomic huge like race privilege class privilege just every form of privilege and power to the folks who are able to pull it off but it's still absolutely a worthy goal and I'm forever in admiration but I just sort of felt like there was just almost everyone I knew sat in the middle of those two extremes, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> the very expensive side to sustainable living. And then the frankly, still kind of expensive, very right. minimalist kind of go without approach. Right. So I just was thinking about everyone I knew who um, were almost all people I thought were great people, smart people, bright people, passionate people who wanted to do better by the planet, but probably didn't really know where to start or didn't really feel included or spoken to in any of the movements they saw or the reflections or the narratives they saw. 
Um, that's, that's like almost everyone, right? I, I believe that most people are at this point aware on some level of the climate crisis and don't necessarily want to make it worse, right? right. It's hard to imagine that you know someone who's like, yeah, I, I don't care at all, right? Like we, we all care in some ways are paralyzed or frozen or mm-hmm. <laughs> don't really know where to begin. And so I, I started really thinking about that and thinking about, you know, like what, what I specifically could, could bring or lend there and spent a long time in sort of home and kitchen and um, the e-commerce and content kind of marketplace universe over at Food52. And that was definitely what I knew and what I was passionate about and also what I was having trouble finding when I mentioned all of that homework I was doing right. for myself, for my home. And so I sort of thought like, okay, what would what would shopping for home or life or your medicine cabinet look like if it were all sustainable, if it were all inclusive, if instead of being 100% beige and granola and feeling like a sacrifice and a very expensive sacrifice at that, what if it felt warm and joyful and colorful and accessible to all different kinds of folks so that yep. hopefully more people could, you know, see themselves being a part of the climate conversation, could feel included, could feel engaged, um, and could sort of slowly begin to like open up that dialogue or that conversation or, or what their contribution or their place in the movement is. Right. So that, that was sort of the beginning of Goldoon and that was last summer. So we're about, we launched in end of October, 2020, we're about eight or nine months in. And did it start? I mean, I, I still don't know. Is it a drop ship concept where you're, you know, connecting people with companies and they're sending it or do you have inventory and, you know, or is it a combination? It's a combination of both. We're, we're primarily dropship. So primarily we're a marketplace where we sort of do the, the sustainability homework on mm-hmm. brand, on products. We test them. We give you as much transparent information as we can about, you know, composition, manufacturing, and most importantly, sort of the end of life of those products. Mm-hmm. Like what should you actually do with them when you're done? Do right. they hit the trash? Do they go to landfill? Mm-hmm. Can they be upcycled or recycled? And, and what if so, like how are they recycled? Is it a blue bin? Is it a special facility? Can right. they be you know, composted? All of that sort of detail we try to distill as cleverly and hopefully cleanly and simply as possible. Um, so that's that's the primary sort of focus we have, but we do dabble um, in developing our own products as well. We have like one to date, but are launching more. I'm not sure when this episode airs, but perhaps we'll have more by then. It's we're, actually we're launching sort of a little bit the above. day after tomorrow. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, unless you're not- launching it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> in coming months, let's say that, coming soon. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about consumer education and, you know, conscious consumption and, all of that fun stuff. We'll be right back. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. We cover avenues for accessing grants, loans, and financial services through federal and local government programs, as well as via nonprofits. We examine the benefits worker cooperatives present to workers, communities, and our food system, and share resources to learn more about operating under this model. We're talking to business owners who started pop-ups and became permanent during the pandemic to see what we can learn. Don't miss these episodes. Subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to TD Bank for supporting this programming. I'm back with Azora Zoe Pachnod from Goldoon and Caroline Cotto from Renewal Mill. 
Um, okay, Caroline, let's let's go back to you for a second because you know you have this background. You worked at the UN World Food Program. You worked at the White House. You worked, um, you know, for the Farm to Fork Accelerator with TechStars. Like, what would you say? You know, and I know that you are operations and co-founder. Um, what would you say are like? you know, the things that you find yourself applying the most to your role as it is now from your past experience, you know, what, what would you say are like the, the, oh, I'm glad I learned this thing. Yeah. I think a lot of my work in malnutrition and child obesity, um, really taught me about behavior change and how hard behavior change Mm. is when it comes to food Mm. in particular, like food is so emotional, Um, you know, we use it to express so many things in our society. And um, I think, yeah, making, you know, my goal is to make behavior change around food really easy, because I've seen Mm. when you're talking about child obesity, or those kind of topics, and you're talking about like, oh, you have to give this up, or you have to change. Um, it's, It's really hard to get people to do that. And so I think with Renewal Mill, what our goal is, is to make the right choice, the easy choice when it comes to sustainable food, right? Like we're creating delicious products that are functional, that benefit you. Um, and so when you're choosing between two flowers to put in your product, let's you know make the right choice, the easy choice and choose the sustainable option. Um, or if you're choosing between a Betty Crocker baking mix and a Renewal Mill baking mix, like let's make that an easy no brainer for you. Um, and also, I think my time at Techstars was really eye-opening because I was working on sort of 10 different businesses across the food supply chain um, and kind of just seeing how, um, you know, to, to really transform the food system, it takes people at every every level um, mm-hmm. and everybody is, is super important in that. So I think um, I try to integrate that into my daily work at Renewal Mill, like we are one part of the solution to food waste, but right. only one part. So going back to the behavior change thing, like I, I, you know, went to Blue Bottle today and apparently I didn't know this. Their default now milk in your coffee is oat milk. Um, did you guys know that? I didn't is know that? that. No. That's yeah. Awesome. I had no idea. So you have to actually specify like cow's milk if you want that, which sounds so weird to actually have to specify, which is, I think, part of the the plan. Right. Um, But, you know, what do you think? I just, I'm curious. I didn't write this in like the draft notes, but what do you think? Why do you think behavior change being as complex as it is and as complicated, like, why do you think oat milk, like specifically oatly, really, like, why do you think it just like, spread like wildfire like what do you think it what do you think happened that you know it wasn't a thing a couple years ago and now I mean from my mom to my kids like it is cross generation it is cross demographic it's like what happened what do you I mean I'm sure there's a lot that happened but (laughs) yeah what would you chalk it up to primarily 
Um, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to remember that Oatly was not an overnight success. Like, they're right. a 20-year-old company. 25-year-old yeah. yeah. So um, I think, you know, it took a lot of on-the-ground guerrilla marketing. Like, I have a friend who is one of the first Oatly reps here in the Bay Area. She literally went coffee shop to coffee shop, educating yeah. each barista on how to use oat milk. Um, mm-hmm. I think that finding a really specific target market and target consumer was really important. And they found yeah. that with the coffee shop market. And so people yeah. were able to introduce it there. And then once it was introduced in a familiar vehicle, um, they could kind of, you know, scale up that marketing and say, like, you, you if you like it in your coffee, why wouldn't you eat it with your cereal yeah. as well? You know, it's interesting. I had Mike Messersmith on, who's the American president, I guess is his title, um, the president of the U.S. of Oatly. Mm. You know, I don't know what his exact title is, but he, you know, because Havens was one of the first coffee shops in New York to have it. And I remember when there was like the great Oatly, you know, scare of whatever, <laughs> people were offering my baristas like 50 bucks. Wow. For like a container wow. that was, yeah. I mean, it was like one of the, you read about them and you're like, no, come on. But <laughs> You know, they really were. I mean, they clearly they it's just, you know, but generally behavior change is really complicated. And it's something that I think, um, you know, Azora Zoe, you're really you hit the nail on the head before the break when you were talking about, you know, making something warm and joyful and making people feel Mm -hmm. included, you know, in a way I'm going to relate it like one, two, three back to me. But like that's the whole plan at Havens. Like our whole thing was if we think, you know, that the world is a better place when more people are cooking from scratch, then the way to get more people to cook from scratch isn't to tell them that you have to do this because you're making the world a better place. Like the way to do it is to get them to enjoy it and to feel pleasure from it and to feel connected to it. And maybe they don't have to do it every single day, but they do it more than they, um, than they were before. And so I think, you know, coming from Food 52, you also have, you know, you've been sort of, I think, come up in that world of cooking and home should be a place where you express yourself with pleasure. Um, would you say that that's kind of, you know, going back to the question I asked Caroline, like what were what were the things that you learned, would you say, at Food 52 that now you're finding yourself applying like on the regular? Oh, that's a juicy question. Um, definitely, I think I, I learned, um, <laughs> we had like a really active and vibrant community at Food 52. And um, I'm lucky that we do at Goldoon, albeit a much smaller and totally different one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Food 52 is obviously like a 12-year-old business, and I'm talking about not even a 12-month-old business. Right. <laughs> it's a different game. But um, I think what I I learned there was, and I think is actually really directly applicable, just how this is going to sound silly or like a truism, but just how different people are and how absolutely personal so many things kind of to Caroline's point around food, around home, around kitchen are right. Those, those are memories that are um, deeply personal. Like we, it, we, we believe that, you know, how we keep our kitchen or how we cook or our homes, whether we're you know conscious of it or not, or, or in somehow like indicative or evocative of who we are, you know, whether in like from a heritage standpoint an identity mm-hmm. standpoint, or even just 
you know, what, what you want to say about yourself to your friends or your family, or even when you, you know, Instagram, like a flat lay of whatever you made that night. I just think that, um, the vast amount of sort of different opinions, perspectives on something as simple as like, you know, a tomato toast recipe that we would publish mm-hmm. or, you know, some sort of article where we'd be like, okay, consider putting, you know, X, Y, Z in your stew. Like <laughs> the amount of, um, right. like, let's say sort of individual different perspectives from the peanut gallery there really, I think taught me a lot. And it, just in the sense that like, no matter how much we think we understand how people live or what they want or what they need, the reality is that we're all so, 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 so different. And right. uh, everything we do is so personal. And in some ways I, I think that was in sometimes like frustrating in my job, right? Mm-hmm. Like trying to, trying to appease the community or make right. the community happy or trying to sort of get ahead of what they might want or what they might need or where they were. And, you know, that of course was, um, <laughs> like a good challenge. And I think in this case for Kuldoon, it, it's, I, I come at it come from kind of the other side, right. Where now my thought is, okay, instead of being really prescriptive about like, you know, I, I think a lot of times this happens when we talk about sustainability, it gets so easy to start shoulding people. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> you should do this. You really should do that. Or, Oh no, you should try it this way. And I, I think people are so quick to sort of like tell other people <laughs> what they should do, whether yeah. it's like, how they should manage their compost or like what they should do with their food scraps. And in, in so many ways it's helpful. Right. Or, you know, we're, we're just trying to like <laughs> add our two cents and feel like our point of views are important or, you know, it's frustrating, I think, especially in the light of the climate crisis to feel so utterly like out of control of the, the grand scale of the issue, right. Or the, right. the larger things like emissions from, from companies that we feel like aren't accountable to us at all. Right. And, the, the small domains that we do have are like these homes, these kitchens, you know, what we are doing with the potato peels or those, those sort of like minute decisions we have each day. And I, I think there's a tug of war there, right. Between those things feeling like they really matter because they're the only places we have agency and that feeling like a really heavy weight sometimes. And then the flip side of that, which is of course, like the potato peels do matter, but what, what also matters is on a global scale some of those things that we oftentimes don't feel like we have control over that we're, I think, trying and sort of fighting as a community or a nation to kind of like wrest control of right. or make our voices heard. And so I think all of that, you know, individuality and intent and um, I think all those things come with, with goodwill, but I think it's easy sometimes to get into the kind of shooting or shaming or telling people what they, you know, what they should do when it comes to the climate crisis. So I, I think on one end, that's that's sort of like the challenge for Goldoon, which is a little different. And the, the pro of it all is, of course, that before even starting the business, I felt like it was really important to kind of like free ourselves of the should and yeah. free ourselves of this idea that like there's one right way to quote unquote like live sustainably or that that's even a finite destination or something that one can, you know, like possess, which of course it's not. <laughs> it's an evolution like everything else in life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this idea that we're all super, super different and it's not on us to tell anyone what, you know, sustainability means or, or how it should look for them or how to do it, quote unquote, right or the one way or our way. Instead, it's on us to present as many viable, accessible, exciting um, and inclusive options as we can and right. present those hopefully thoughtfully and clearly and efficiently. And um, that, that, that yeah. actually that gives me like that. 
I have now like three questions. So I'm going to try to <laughs> like that led to, okay. One is when you are creating a community as food 52 has done so well, I also had a Amanda on, uh, I guess last year or the year before, um, you know, you also, you are vulnerable to everyone thinking that, you know, if a consumer hears for a decade that their voice is critical, then they believe their voice is critical. And in some ways, that's amazing, right? You get a lot of, um, you know, support within the community of people and you get a lot of really good feedback. And even, you know, like 5-2 was built on, you know, people saying what they wanted in a cutting board. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side of that is that social media is anonymous and angry. And I'm just wondering if you've had any challenges with, you know, people saying that's not good enough or, you Mm -hmm. know, or I don't like this product or, you know, have you, have you faced any of that yet? And if you haven't, are you, are you planning for what will happen when you do? I'm sure we will. I think it, especially as we tackle some of the larger issues and I see this on some of the more sort of like dominant, uh, I'd say like activists that I, I feel like really model inclusivity well, like a, one that I, I love and recommend following along with on Instagram, if you don't, is intersectional environmentalist, mm-hmm. but definitely folks get in the comments and have really passionate debates about, you know, like are electric vehicles good or bad, right? Or like, okay, right. lithium batteries. <laughs> those right. are those are not easy things to talk about. Um, and I, I think that we don't, we don't necessarily face that that much of it or haven't to date. And on one hand, I think um, that's good. That means we're, we're doing something right and that we're making it very, very clear from the point of entry through, you right. know, any content or, you know, interaction or experience you have with us. Like we're open to all perspectives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're here, we're, we're not here to bash other people's perspectives. We don't do the shame thing. We also don't tolerate hate. So I, I think we're setting boundaries there right. reasonably well, but I absolutely, I think with scale, you open yourselves up to that kind of feedback or criticism, whether it's, you know, justified, whether it's constructive, whether it's helpful or not. I right. think that's just the name of the game when, you know, everyone has a smartphone. That's my right. thought. But I, I think at our current size, those sorts of expectation setting, sort of like exercises or boundary setting or really clear communication is a lot easier because we're really communicating with this like core community who's seeing us through this first year of our life as a business, right? Like folks who are here, power users, (laughs) they're here for that reason. And I'm sure as we scale and we sort of move away from just one core community, it will happen. But yeah. I also, sorry, (laughs) I was going to say I have one thought on that is that like Azora Zoe is doing it really well, right? (laughs) So I think it really depends how you approach this conversation. Like we're really conscious about avoiding greenwashing because that's when you open yourself up to to all of this mm-hmm. kind of hateful comments and ridicule from the dark web of the internet. But you know, <laughs> like it's really clear from Goldoon's website, like that she's putting her best foot forward, that she's doing everything to the best of her ability, and I think that really shows through to the people who are following her work. Thank yeah, you so much, Caroline. Like, <laughs> no, it's 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 really true. I mean, the the website is chock full and and really fun and great reading. And and also, I, I wanted you to talk. Speaking of the website, a little bit about your sustainability spectrum, um, because one of the things that you talk about is you know shifting the all or nothing narratives. And you know, I hear it all the time. 
you know, I'm just gonna, if, if it's not gonna, mm, I'm just gonna, uh, or, you know, well, <laughs> if I can't be whatever, I'm just gonna do, uh. and that, again, that goes back to sort of like the training of the American consumer, which you, you talked about, you know, I think really well that like most people are, are trying actively not to make things worse, but we've been given very few solutions as to how to make things better. And um, I like that you're giving people a lot more solutions and um, that you're, you're, you're putting it all out there. So tell me a little bit about how you came up with the sustainability spectrum and kind of what it is. Thank you so much. I also really liked what you, you mentioned at sort of the top of the episode about it, it feeling oftentimes like a zero sum game. Yeah. And I think that's sort of where the, that's, it's from sort of the root of that thought, of course, where we, we came up with the spectrum, but I'll, I'll just say that I, I think it's human nature to really want things to be black and white or binary. And we like live in a time where of course we're feeling really active tension and push and pull between you know, like the confines of our society trying to make everything binary. And then mm-hmm. folks who are kind of like, hey, wait, that actually doesn't really make much sense. Like, let's right. examine why. Um, and I feel like we're just at the, the beginning of the conversation ar- around like, okay, why are things this way? And like, why is the binary set up this way? Well, is yeah, binary so- real? sorry to interrupt you, but not only do you have sort of the historical sort of like, you know, binary, but you also have, again, not to sound like the, you know, middle-aged woman that I am, but you have a a world online, which rewards the binary, which rewards good and bad, black and white, should and shouldn't, yes and no. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the more nuance there is, the less clicks. Um, And that's really challenging when you're trying to, you know, I remember, you know, in my master's program being like, how, how come I'm the only person that I know who, who now knows this stuff? Like, why isn't this readily available to just the average consumer? Why do you have to have a master's degree in food systems to, to know, you know, some very basic things about recycling in municipal, you know, systems like the, it, but, but there's no room for it, you know? And, and I think it's, a, you're right, it's human nature, but B, it's compounded by the way that we get our information these days and by the way that we share that information. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that's part of the tension, right, is even though we are receiving information that way and that sort of gatekeeps our access to information, still somehow folks are managing to say, <laughs> I don't know, like, I don't know about mm-hmm. that. That might not be right, right? And that, that I think that's impressive and wild and amazing. And I think the general direction we're headed in, though, of course, like all things, it will take so, so much time, right? Like massive societal change is like, I I like to think of it as like, it's a seesaw, right? And on Mm -hmm. one end, there's like a boulder. And on the other end, there's a person holding like a tiny basket. And year by year, someone adds like a grain of sand to the basket. Right. (laughs) It can take forever. So your sustainability spectrum is is the person holding the basket. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're we're one grain of sand. But what I will say is, I I think that, um, I I don't know, sustainability really felt like something that 
folks were trying to make binary, right? Like plastic bad, glass good. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, it's actually not that simple Mm -hmm. if you want to sit down and think about it or talk about it. I do. Um, I do. And and there's so many of those issues, right? Like that's one minute example, but even just in the context of us evaluating end of life for products or what products ship in, like I could, I could talk about that for hours and hours. And so I think ultimately a lot of folks wanted us to give a rating, like a good, bad, (laughs) A plus, F minus to products and uh, to, you know, either stamp them with approval or not and be like vegan, good, (laughs) right? not bad. And the reality to me was like, okay, I actually, first of all, I don't feel, um, I don't feel comfortable making that assessment, Mm -hmm. right? It requires levels of all knowingness that I don't have. And also it it robs us and deprives us of the conversation we need to be having. And the conversation we need to be having is all of those conversations about why something isn't black or white, but why it's gray, right? Both on the the minute level, like about your toothpaste, but also on the macro level about the climate crisis, right? And even when I I was was talking sort of about, you know, social media fallout or like criticism and who like are lithium batteries bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) dialogue it's the gray that needs to happen, right? It's the gray that allows us to form opinions. And it's not, you know, someone telling us exactly what to think. It's us sort of parsing through all of that, that in between. So the sustainability spectrum for us is an opportunity to have a conversation first and foremost, and to talk about sustainability. But also, I think it's the most honest and most sort of like, radically true mm-hmm. <laughs> version of events we could possibly give, right? Because it wouldn't be fair to the consumer. It wouldn't be fair to us. It wouldn't be fair to brands who are going out of their way above and beyond to make, you know, sustainable iterations of the things you use on a daily basis to just say good or bad or sustainable, not sustainable. The reality is that there is no finite sustainable. Right. <laughs> and so we're, we're all just working towards what, whatever it is in the middle. Um, but yeah, that's our spectrum. We, we do rank every single product on a spectrum, like super sustainable, getting better. And right. it's, it's sort of a, a little like rainbow thermometer. Yeah. And um, that to me is a good sort of also a good barometer of who we are at Goldoon and what we do for folks. Yeah, that's great. And so Caroline, I want to go back to, to the greenwashing comment that you made before, because like if anyone could greenwash, it could be you, right? Like if, <laughs> yeah. you, if you wanted to lean really hard into like, you should eat this because it is better, you know, and, you know, tout your environmental muscles, you could. Um, But you've chosen not to. And I I hear you that partly you've chosen not to, you know, because you just open yourself up to some nonsense. But why else? I mean, how are you trying to get, you know, what is you know, we, I never knew this was a thing until we did like a brand refresh, but like the hierarchy of your messaging, right? Like, Mm -hmm. is it, this is really good. Oh, it also happens to be upcycled or is it, you know, this is particularly marketed to people who are trying to be more, you know, thoughtful about their waste. That's kind of one part of the question. And the second part of the question is, you know, I, I read um, in, you know, one of the articles about you guys that, you know, there's a lot of rightfully so, again, it's not an either or, but there's a lot of um, innovation in the plant-based world um, where, you know, a lot of money is being put into a lot of, you know, chicken, not chicken, 
nuggets and, you know, burgers and hot dogs and bacon and, you know, salami and, you know, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. And of course, you know, it's great. Um, it does seem like there's a lot of money um, at crazy valuations going into some of these um, companies. And it seems like there's something quieter about what you were doing. And I'm just, I'd like your thoughts on that. So it's kind of a two-part question. Yeah, to the first part, as far as like messaging hierarchy, I think as much as I would like to think consumers are evolving and putting sustainability higher up um, as far as they're, when they're considering their purchases, I think consumers are still very selfish. And so they want to know first and foremost, like, does the product right. taste good? And, you know, what does it do for me? And so we definitely, you know, those are at the forefront of what we do when we're making baking mixes and, and ready to eat cookies. And, and to my earlier point of like, how Oatly kind of used familiar vehicles, we're trying to do that as well. Like here mm-hmm. is a familiar vehicle, like America's favorite chocolate chip cookie with this, you know, sustainable twist and kind of getting mm-hmm. people bought on that way. Um, but it has changed. Um, you know, I think we were very conscious when we first started about not putting the word waste anywhere on our packaging. And, you know, we did a brand refresh at the beginning of this year where all of our packaging now says fight climate change right on Mm -hmm. the front. Um, And on the back, it says this product is, you know, reducing food waste. And we're very kind of blatant about it. Right. Um, So the messaging, you know, still is taste forward, chef driven, um, you know, and when we're selling the pure flowers, nutrition driven, because we know that sustainability, unfortunately, isn't a a reason enough for a lot of large companies to purchase on its own. Um, it has to have that functionality, but we are closely following that with the sustainability messaging. And do you have a big food service business for it? Or is that a channel that you're growing or did that get kind of waylaid because of COVID? I mean, going back to the Oatly model where, you know, it wasn't available for retail, I think for like a year mm-hmm. um, after they started in the cafes, are you having are you having bakeries use it and bake with it and, and marketing it through that channel at all? Or Yeah, really? we're actually an ingredients company at heart. That's a big part of what we do. So we're right. kind of selling it to other CPG companies, the flowers, to use in their mm-hmm. own products. People like Pulp Pantry and Tia Lupita and Fancy right. Pants Baking Company. Um, Got it. We did have a, a larger food service sector before the pandemic and pandemic right. kind of accelerated our move into retail. Um, but our retail products are really supposed to help educate people about upcycled food and kind of drive that cycle back up to the ingredient side of the business as well. Right. Um, because we see a lot of potential for just massive impact and moving yeah. large volumes on the ingredient side. For sure. I mean, that's totally. Um, and then to part two. Yeah. On the second. Um, yeah. Thoughts on all of the, on all of the venture meat. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's going to be my new t- <laughs> expression. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I think personally, I am a, a bit skeptical. I uh, coming from kind of a more of a nutrition background. I, I don't love, I think people are kind of automatically are like, Oh, it's a vegan option. It must be healthier. And that is often far from the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, you know, that it all comes down to data. Like we're very, 
conscious to do life cycle assessments on our ingredients and say like, okay, if we're going to make a claim that this is, you know, more sustainable than wheat flour, rice flour, like, do we have the data to back that up? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, these venture meat companies need to do the same. Like if you're going to tell people that this is a healthier planet friendly option, then like make sure that you've done the work to make sure that that's true because there's still a lot of (laughs) Uh, emissions that go into producing these highly processed foods to packaging them to shipping them frozen across the country so i think they're you know it's great all and well like to the whole to, life cycle yeah like jump on the train assessment. but yeah definitely you need to do that that life cycle assessment and i think um personally i just believe in kind of telling people more about eating whole foods and plant-based like eat fresh fruit and vegetables like michael pollan's kind of eat mm-hmm. mostly plants um but I do think that there is a, a place for vegan meat alternatives in kind of converting that the mainstream kind of the way that, you know, the, the Whopper is doing it, right? Like converting right. people who are perpetual meat eaters to, to switching out. Um, and to the point of behavior change, like, like making it in a familiar vehicle that they're already eating like chicken nuggets or burgers. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, Caroline, I'm going to start with you. Uh, for other founders out there, like we talked about before the show, mostly people this is not a um i don't think that i don't think that many people would find it that riveting unless they were actually like in this world thinking about being in this world um so if you are just you know thank you like a dancer that's cool um but you know mostly it's founders and and you know people who work in cpg um what do you want them to know? What What would you have wanted someone to tell you four years ago? Uh, what do you think is, you know, really good advice that you either have gotten or you wish you would have gotten? Um, you know, speak to yourself. Yeah, I think it's really important to build sustainability in from the very beginning, like early and often. I think a, a previous job I also had was working on the culture team of a big tech company. And they kind of, you know, showed me that you have to build in culture early and often if you mm-hmm. want to, to create that culture in your company when you're a 5,000 person company. And I think the same is true for, for sustainability. It's much easier to think about it when you're just starting out than when you already have product and plastic yep. packaging all the way across the country and you're trying to figure out what to do. such a great, you know, we were talking about that today with, you know, culture, equity, sustainability, all of the things that you want eventually the company to stand for. For those of us in like these fast growing companies where we hire a couple of people every year and before we know it, we've gone from a team of four to a team of 20 if those things aren't built into like the DNA of the brand, it's going to be very hard to have like someone come in and like teach you how to do it. Or, you know, all of a sudden shift, shift your systems to make that work. I think that's incredible advice. Really good advice. Um, Azora Zoe, what about you? And, you know, what would you have said to yourself nine months ago? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I'm maybe still too close to it to give good advice, to be honest. No, you're not. I think think two things. One, um, well, first of all, Caroline's advice was so amazing that I'm like wanting to scrap mine and stick with that forever. I love it. It's so good. But um, I I think one is... invest in a coach or a safe space or a partner, whether that's a co-founder or, you know, an exec coach or, 
uh, a friend, do you like buy a martini once a week? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> their advice from, um, but someone I think who makes you feel seen and confident and, and can help you and give you critical feedback in a way that makes you still feel seen and supported. Um, I, I also think this, <laughs> it ties back to my second piece of advice, which is that it's a, a marathon, not a sprint. And yeah. I think it, it was really easy for me at least the journey from founding to launch day to treat it like sort of more of a sprint. And Mm -hmm. um, then you realize that you, you know, you sprinted the first leg of actually what is like truly a very long marathon. And it's, it's kind of just like adjusting to a new way of life where you're on the hook for so much more than you could have possibly imagined. (laughs) And the stakes are high. And um, that's why I think those two pieces of advice sort of are, are married, right? right? Like it's a, a long road. So buckle up help. and I think, yeah, yeah, make sure you have what you need so you can do, you know, like make it to the other side in one piece. Um, and yeah. it's easy to get hyped and you have to hype yourself up, I think, to start anything. So it makes a lot of sense that, that that's how it would begin. But um, I, I definitely would tell myself that um, it's okay to go a little slower and to think a little bit more thoughtfully about who might who might help me get there. I love that. I'm going to sound like a a grandfather again um, (laughs) after my social media rant. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, again, there is so much hype. There is so much sort of, you know, there's a lot of focus today in startup culture around money raised. Um, Mm. It's like, yay, amazing. And yes, it it is not easy to raise money. Um, There is less hype around building a really good company and building a long lasting company. Um, And, you know, to use an overused words, a sustainable business. And Mm -hmm. it's hard because, you know, it's easy to get caught up in all of that. Um, And that puts the pressure on. And that means that, you know, whether you're a D to C brand and, you know, your ads just, got three times as expensive or you're, you know, a a primarily wholesale brand and, you know, one of your main retailers isn't having meetings this year for whatever reason, it can be really devastating. And I think to your point, Azora Zoe, like having someone, not necessarily like your friend or even your romantic partner or someone who works with you, but like Mm -hmm. someone who you can share because the highs are high and the lows are pretty low and the, the you're whiplashy a lot of the time. It's good. It's bad. It's good. It's bad. And it is a marathon. Um, and like I, you know, I say a lot on this show, you know, getting, getting, getting into onto your website is, is not even hitting. It's you're on, you're on the you know home plate. Like you haven't even gotten to first base yet. It's when you get the orders again and again and again that you, you know, that's when you start moving around the bases. Um, So I think that's really great advice too. Um, I want to thank both of you guys for coming on. Um, It was a really good conversation. I learned a lot. I took a lot of notes. Um, And I'd love both of you to tell people where they can go to support you and or your product. 
Um, I can start. Uh, yeah, we're at <laughs> renewalmill.com and um, on all social media platforms at Renewal Mill. And we're in Whole Foods, Northern California, and most of the large e-commerce platforms. So like Thrive Market, Good Eggs, um, Imperfect Foods, and Goldoon. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you for that segue, Caroline. <laughs> you can find us at uh, goldune.com. Goldune is spelled G-O-L-D-U-N-E. And also on Instagram at goldune.co. Um, and you don't just sell food. Like no. everyone, there's a bunch of categories there. Personal care, oh, yeah. home, pet. Yeah. So we're focused go. on home life, medicine cabinet. So kitchen is, is in the home, obviously, and a big part mm-hmm. of what we do and a big part of where we create waste and go through stuff. But we're also focused on making, you know, the other rooms of your house as cozy and as sustainable as can be. Amazing. Well, thank you both. Amanda, thank you as always. I know it's been a day for you um, with technical issues and whatnot. So hopefully this is your last recording and you get to go home and go to sleep. Um, (laughs) And um, I will not be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce, but I will be back the week after. And um, thank you all for listening. Have a great week. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.